You are entering the Freedom Hut. We've got a Thanksgiving Eve extravaganza planned for you, my friends, in the Freedom Hut today, including Trump's latest feud with the Ninth Circuit, the allegation that he actually wanted to have Hillary prosecuted for breaking the law when it comes to her emails. We've got updates on the caravan crisis and some pre-Thanksgiving thoughts coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Well, you go to the Ninth Circuit and it's a disgrace and I'm going to put in a major complaint. Because you cannot win, if you're us, a case in the Ninth Circuit. And I think it's a disgrace when people file, every case gets filed in the Ninth Circuit. Because they know that's not law. That's not what this country stands for. Every case that gets filed in the Ninth Circuit, we get beaten. And then we end up having to go to the Supreme Court like the travel ban, and we won. This was an Obama judge. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to happen like this anymore. Everybody that wants to sue the United States, they file their case in almost. They file their case in the Ninth Circuit, and it means an automatic loss. No matter what you do, no matter how good your case is, and the Ninth Circuit is really something we have to take a look at. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Trump criticizing the judiciary publicly. Oh, my. All the pearl clutching now from across the media spectrum. How could he? Oh, no. Not the judges, too. Uh, You're going to hear a lot of how he's undermining our institutions. This from people who, as we'll talk about later in the program, are still acting like there were stolen elections where Republicans won. And they have no evidence they were stolen, but they're still going to say they're stolen because that doesn't undermine our elections. Someone needs to explain that one to me. Uh, This from people who claim that Marco Rubio and others who were merely pointing out that in Florida there were election irregularities, there were failures of the people in charge of the elections in Broward County and Palm Beach County. That just doesn't that doesn't count. In fact, to bring it up was to be doing Putin's work, according to the media, because they didn't they didn't want too much light to be shown on the situation there. Maybe find some Democrats doing some shady stuff. Wouldn't be the first time. Certainly not going to be the last either. But this is a very important debate, actually, at the, at the national level. There, there's, there's a lot that we need to uh, look at here, a lot to unpack. And it's been elevated a little bit because Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, uh, has gone after the president a little bit as a result of this. He released a statement where he said, quote, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do uh, to do equal right to those appearing before them. That independent judiciary is something we should all be thankful for. Uh, I think Justice Roberts is wrong. I think it's obvious that he's wrong. I think that he probably knows that he's wrong, but he believes that this is one of those lies that for the for the good of society, we all have to tell each other. Uh, are there left-wing judges? 
This is a very straightforward question. Are there left-wing judges that have a an entirely different interpretation of what the Constitution says and also just an entire different approach to how one interprets the Constitution? The answer is yes. And anyone who says otherwise would have to explain, how is it that I always know how Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to rule on a major issue? I always know. I always know how Sonia Sotomayor is going to rule on a major Keep in mind, by the time it's gotten up to the Supreme Court, there's been back and forth in courts often, different judges, different opinions. But I always know how the libs on the court are going to vote. I always know how they're going to come down with, you know, exceptions on certain issues that are not as hot button for libs. But, you know, if it's affirmative action, I know Sotomayor is going to go to the mat for that. You know, if it's abortion, I know Ginsburg is going to do everything she can to continue to prop up that fake constitutional right. So this is just, I, I wish we could speak to each other like adults. Why did the why did the left wing completely lose their mind over Kavanaugh over the summer? Engage in the worst, most disgraceful character assassination on national TV I have ever seen in my life. Because there's no such thing as as Obama judges or Trump judges. There's just judges. Please, don't speak to us like we're idiots, Roberts. This is also why I've been saying all along, the court is not nearly as conservative as many people pretend that it is. Roberts isn't, isn't really a conservative. He's an institutionalist. So that means that some of his... Uh, some of his inclinations will line up with conservatism. I think personally, ideologically, he may be somewhat conservative. He does seem conservative. But in terms of his view of the judiciary, he is very much, you know, he's kind of like a journalist at this point who believes that journalists don't have a bias. That's a nice ideal. That's a nice position to to espouse. And to, it, it's a nice hope. It's not rooted in reality, though. What Trump is saying is rooted in the reality. And, and we, the American people, we need to understand this, that judges are now in politicized roles. I wish it weren't the case. The left has done this. They're the ones that have the, you know, the living constitution. They're the ones that have this open-ended view of jurisprudence. That means that social justice overrides the will of the founders, judicial precedent, and the plain language meaning of written law. Words aren't words. Words are whatever the left says they are. They've been doing this for decades. It's how they've gotten some of the biggest victories handed to them by the Supreme Court. And that's why when Trump responded to Chief Justice Roberts, I, I entirely agree with, with Trump's sentiment here. He says, sorry, Chief Justice Roberts, but you do indeed have Obama judges, and they have a much different point of view than the people who are charged with the safety of our country. It would be great if the Ninth Circuit, this was all on Twitter from our president, it would be great if the Ninth Circuit was indeed an independent judiciary but if it is, why are there so many opposing views on border and safety cases filed there? And why are a vast number of those cases overturned? Please study the numbers. They are shocking. We need protection and security. These rulings make our country unsafe, very dangerous and unwise. Exclamation point. Um, Trump is right. Trump is right here. John Roberts is wrong. I don't. I don't think we need to beat around the bush. I think we can just say it. Trump has apparently a more, if not sophisticated, more realistic understanding of what the judiciary and the judicial branch overall has become. It's now a political battleground on political issues. I mean, you know, 
on issues of interpretation things about you know you know process uh, you know cr criminal procedure and things yeah i mean you can get into some more specific stuff where there's not really an ideological inflection point it's not dictated by people's overall political ideological framework and you know there are points of law that are arcane and you know we need a bunch of legal scholars to figure out well what's fine on the big issues on the important issues the court is politicized and one of the problems we run up against is that a conservative jurisprudence does mean that people get a fair hearing before the judge a conservative jurisprudence in the contemporary context is the law is the law and i'm going to try to apply the law without favoritism without ideological proclivity entering into this and you know and essentially conservative judges do what robert says all judges do liberal judges look at the law and they go okay well what do i think the what do i think the outcome here needs to be and then they reverse engineer from that the decision they come up with. But that that's that tells you really what the difference is. And that's why there's this frustration on the right with, well, our, you know, our side, our judges, so to speak. You know, and by the way, just because you're appointed by a let me Bush appointed uh what was it? I think Souter? Was it Bush appointed? I mean, George H. W. Bush had some terrible judges that he appointed. Reagan might have, you know, I mean, I mean, it was either George H.W. Reagan. Reagan appointed a, you know, some, I got to look back at the list of Supreme Court appointees, make sure I'm not giving you any, I mean, I, I'm right. I'm just, I'm, I might be on the specifics off the top of my head. Republican, here, here's what I can tell you for sure. There have been Republican presidents who have appointed very bad, very left-wing judges to the Supreme Court. That has happened. Uh, and, and it never happens on the other side. You find me a Scalia or a Thomas that was appointed by Barack Obama, by Jimmy Carter, by Bill Clinton. Uh -uh. Doesn't happen. They always get they always get what they're going for, which is somebody who's going to pursue liberal policies for them. And and this is going to be a big issue going forward because the the Democrats, there's no legislation that's going to happen for the next two years, really. You're just going to have political fights in Congress and the executive branch battling with the courts. And courts may have to weigh in here pretty soon on some aspects of the Mueller probe. They may have to weigh in on some of these congressional hearings. And, you know, what if the Democrats force a constitutional... They keep talking about a constitutional crisis. Well, a real constitutional crisis is going to be, what if Democrats just think that they're going to subpoena the Trump administration into submission? You know, what, what if Democrats in, in the House decide that they're just going to start calling senior members of the Trump administration before them for all their crazy, fever-swamp-inspired conspiracy theories? Um, do they get to just weaponize that process without any, with, without any pushback from the executive branch? I mean, that's where we're heading. That's what I think you're, you're going to see. So, I, I mean, I, I agree with Trump, and I, and I think that Roberts you know, is, is fighting a losing battle here to try to make us all believe that the judiciary is still this, you know, organization that, or, you know, this really this brotherhood and sisterhood that has a, that, that acts apart from political considerations. It's just false. It's not the case. And, and I, 
And I know that people say, oh, my gosh, Trump, you know, he's undermining the judiciary by doing this. and He's undermining our democratic norms. And they say all this. It's the same talking points all the time. It's all boring. It's annoying. It's what they do. But I come at this and I say, can't we can't we start from a position of honesty about the judicial system that we have and, and the way that it is trending and how judges are often acting? Can't we do that? Do we have to speak to each other like we're like we're frightened children and 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 honestly, can't handle the truth? I, I know I had to go there, but that's what we're doing right now. That's what's happening here. I mean, I, I think Trump is uh, doing us all a service by at least forcing this conversation out into uh, the light of day and, and, and get a better discussion going over this. Uh, but there's also the issue that came out. The New York Times had a piece, some others, about uh, what what Trump may or may not have said with regard to uh, Hillary and the emails and all that. So, oh, we've got some of that coming your way. Mueller probe updates, the caravan crisis at our border. The crisis, they said, wasn't going to happen. Oh, it looks like it's happening. We've also got Sean Parnell joining to talk about how does how is Trump doing with uh, the military, at least on in terms of perception and optics and some of the stuff recently, you know, he hasn't visited the military in a war zone. You're hearing this this constant criticism of the president on that issue. You know, do, do folks in the military care? Uh, I'll ask Sean about that and some other stuff. So we, we've got a fantastic Thanksgiving Eve show planned for your enjoyment and entertainment. So stay with us. This is what happens in authoritarian countries. The president orders um, the, the president, the leader, orders the investigation and prosecution of his political enemies. I think it's prima facie evidence of abuse of power. This is absolutely awesome. Donald Trump is basically running his office like he's the head of a banana republic. I think this is a scandal at a 15 on a 1 to 10 level. He was essentially trying to use the apparatus of a, the state to punish his political enemies. So this is uh, another another story out of the, is it even true files? But they're saying the big the big New York Times, uh, big New York Times piece yesterday from Maggie Haberman and uh, and Schmidt over at the New York Times is that President Trump told the White House Counsel last spring that he wanted the Justice Department to prosecute Hillary Clinton and former FBI Director James Comey, according to two people who are familiar with the conversation. Now, this then starts all the usual stuff. Oh, he's authoritarian. Oh, he's a, he's a despot. He's a dictator. Notice how this stuff never happens. We always, we always get the Trump wanted to do this authoritarian thing or Trump wanted to do this monarchical thing, and, but he never does it. He ne- when I ask, what is, the, what is the dictatorial thing that Trump has done? They go, he pulled the Costas press pass. That's not, that doesn't count. That's not enough. Sorry. Instead, they say, oh, well, Trump said this thing one time to someone that won't be named that sounded like he wanted to be a dictator, but he's really not going to do it. A lot of those stories. Well, I would note that to be a dictator, you have to actually do stuff that's bad. You don't you can't just be saying things behind closed doors that make some people uncomfortable and take no actions based on them. I mean, I mean, to actually be in the dictator club, right? It's a little more involved than just. You know, hearsay about conversations happened a long time ago. But let's take a look for a second at the Hillary Clinton side of this for a moment. And this this also is an important time to have this discussion because we're being told, oh, the judiciary is not political. And James Comey, who 
we were being told until very recently not political, we were lied to about that. Comey is an anti-Trump hack. He has been all along. He's also a Comeyist, so he was willing to suck up to the president when he thought he could keep his FBI job. But he's an anti-Trump hack, and he bailed Hillary Clinton out. He bailed the Democrats out and engaged in improper behavior to do it. So, you know, I'm not somebody who thinks that the truth should be hidden from the public about judges or about the senior reaches, the, the, the senior most echelon of the FBI. And they essentially saved Hillary Clinton's chances for the presidency, at least. And now we're, we're being told that the, the real problem is that Trump has a problem with that, that Trump thinks it's unacceptable that they, for obviously political purposes, bailed Hillary out. For obviously political reasons, they decided that the law didn't really apply when it comes to Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, the jur- journalists, just they have curiosity about things that support their narrative. They have no interest in things that don't. And then they turn around and look at you and me and say, you know, why don't you trust us more? Maybe because they're not trustworthy. Has that ever occurred to them? Has that thought ever been there, perhaps, that we are just paying attention? And that's why we like when Trump refers to them as fake news. And that's why I say that they are the enemy of truth, which they most certainly are. Did Trump want to prosecute Hillary? I don't know. Should Hillary have been prosecuted? Abso-friggin-lutely. How about the media focus on that for about five seconds? That would be a bit of balance, don't you think? The arrogance, the incredible arrogance, as with a little measure of stupidity. It's possible that she's just considered a princess and totally separate from the rest of the rules that the American government and the president's uh, uh, cabinet and advisors go by. When the new Congress gets sworn in, the House Oversight Committee, they need to seek nothing less of Ivanka Trump and her lawyers and the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They really are a mob family. They basically took what they were doing in the business, the Trump organization, and brought it to the White House and didn't care at all with what the rules were and what they can and cannot do. This is the Ivanka email scandal that wasn't, my friends. You've you've been hearing it from me. I'm going to be very consistent on this issue. Trust me. This is a giant nothing burger. Avec fromage. This is just a total waste of everyone's time. Um, But they they are giving the left wing base what they want. uh, And and it also gives them an opportunity to really go after Ivanka, which which they want to do, which they really and that's the plan. I mean, I see peace here, peace here. Ivanka, um, you know, Ivanka Trump ignores rules because she doesn't treat the White House as a real job. Um, you know, that's they're going to just pile on now and go after Ivanka. And what I think is so funny is Ivanka is from what most people would tell you, a liberal folks. OK, so they have a very senior advisor in the White House who is sympathetic to their aims and sympathetic to their ideology, but they're just going to trash her anyway because she's Trump's daughter and because she's tied to Trump. Now, I, I cannot defend and, and I will not defend uh, the, the, the the nepotism that is involved here. And for those of you who are, are going to say to me, oh, but Buck, you know, 
whatever you'd say, let me just tell you this. Just wait until there's a Democrat who, who makes his or her son or daughter like the you know chief of staff of the White House and conservatives and the right. We're going to sit there and say uh, uh, nothing. We're going to have to say nothing. Well, let's let's understand. We have principles. The other side doesn't. And it's now been established. You can take your kids and make them senior advisors in the White House. Give them big government jobs with a lot of power and a lot of authority. We're going to have to live with the consequences of that. There's there's just no way around it. Uh, I, I Let's just be honest about that. Uh, so that all said, I, I think it's interesting that Ivanka is a target for so much hatred on the left, considering that she's really just working on issues that are generally um, in the bipartisan realm of jobs and women and women in employment, women CEOs, entrepreneurs trying to push uh, trying to push for criminal justice reform along with Jared. I mean, Jared's also not particularly conservative, right? So they, you, know, you got two liberals that are very senior advisors, not, maybe not liberals, but at least center left that are senior advisors in this White House, and the, le- and the left still hates them, just hates them, cannot stand them. And it's because they're tied to Trump. But they, on the email, I mean, this is just, there's nothing here, folks. The emails all exist. They've all been recorded. Her lawyers already uh, talked about this. This has been out there for a little while. They've known about this. You know, th- this was uh, a, it's a rookie mistake. It's a rookie mistake. But it wasn't. The, the, the difference between, you know, classified email and just using email that is personal is night and day. Comey used some personal email for uh, for his professional business at the FBI. I mean, lots of people did this. Lots of people have done this. It just happens. I have a phone right now in my hand where I've got multiple email accounts. And you know, if I'm responding quickly, I might not pay attention to which email account I'm responding from. That's just a, that's a normal, everyday mistake. This is all just about record keeping, too. There's no, there's no undue influence. There's no corruption. The records were kept. It's not that big a deal, but they're trying to make it a huge deal. And, and, you know, I, I appreciate there were some other conservatives. People were a little weak on this yesterday, I thought. I was a little surprised. Look around. People say, oh, she made such a mistake. I'm like, no, it's not such a mistake. It's minor. It's just that they've blown this completely out of proportion because it involves somebody in Trump's family. And, and the ultimate goal here, and I really believe this, the, the left is they realize that going after Trump Trump's such a fighter. They realize that by going after him, you know, he's just going to roll up his sleeves, crack his knuckles and say, bring it. But if they can, if they can really damage his kids, that's, I think, the plan. They, they want to, they want to ruin his family. You know, they want to put his, and especially his kids, because they look, the first lady, there's still, she has a little bit of protection because, we, at least culturally, I mean, I'm not saying they're as nice to her as the word of Michelle Obama. It's so amazing, right? Please, don't, I'm going to throw up. But, you know, the, the First Lady is, is on a little bit of a separate separate area because that's not a, 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 a government position of real power. Yes, influence, but you don't have power as First Lady that's designated to you. Um, but to be senior White House advisors that people either in the chain of command have to answer to, you know, that for me is, uh, that's the opening that, that they need. 
in order to really try to take they they want their top targets going into the 2020 election and i mean targets for prosecution if they can even if they know that trump will eventually pardon them it doesn't matter the prosecution would be humiliating think about that you're a senior white house advisor i mean if, if their dream scenario is to get jared on uh money laundering or tax fraud their dream scenario is to get donald trump jr on lying under oath in the russia investigation or you know or to get ivanka on trademark infringement you know whatever it is and and to humiliate one of trump's children or a family member of his because it's deeply personal for the left and that's why when this email thing comes out they they abandon all objectivity right away i mean no no serious person can tell me that ivanka's email situation is is even the same stratosphere as what hillary clinton did and and they just lay out the facts destroying the destroying the different hard drives with hammers using bleach bit erasing 30,000 emails, only using that email, by the way. This wasn't a, oh, sometimes I used the wrong email because I was going between different accounts. Only, Hillary only used that email because she wanted control over her entire record. Why? Oh, as I've told you all along, the Clinton Foundation was why, which now, by the way, the Congress says they're going to look into this more. There's going to be some investigation here of the Clinton Foundation. There's got some stuff. But the Clinton Foundation was the real vulnerability because all it took was one shady email to come into Hillary Clinton about somebody saying, hey, this donor wants a meeting with you and, and wants this policy when you're president or whatever it may be. And that gets foiled because once it's in her inbox as a government official, it's in her inbox. So she wanted to control that. The Clinton Foundation was always the vulnerability for her when she was running. But she set up a separate email server and only used that. And she was Secretary of State. The Secretary of State gets the PDB. The Secretary of State has access to the most classified stuff in the United States government. Ivanka was like in the transition. I don't even know. I don't even know if she was had an interim clearance at this time. The idea that she was, you know, seeing all this really sensitive. What she's seeing classified information about our employment numbers. I mean, give me a break. It just doesn't add up. But that's where I have to remind myself. It's. It's not going to add up because it's not about being accurate. It's not about being fair. It's just part of the destroy Trump effort. And I've the same way that I'll be now I'll talk to you a little bit later on the show. Uh, we'll have some Thanksgiving cheer. You know, I've got a couple of buddies joining later. We got a couple of veterans going to talk to us about, well, the news, but also about some Thanksgiving thoughts. So that'll be fun. Sean Parnell, my buddy, Sean Parnell is going to be with us later on in the show. It's always good to hear from Sean. But the same way that I, I've just grown, I know so many of you have as well, tired of this Russia collusion, blah. It's just all crap. Uh, we're going to get so tired of the attacks on Trump because they're going to be uh, hyperbolic, dishonest, exaggerated, false. I mean, just throw throw in your, your prediction here because you know it's going to happen. And what's so disgraceful about it is that they won't care about any of that they they will not say oh you know what maybe we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't have uh such a an oppositional attitude to the president of the united states that doesn't take facts into account no they're gonna say it's great let's destroy let's destroy trump whatever we have to do to destroy him and that's why the ivanka email thing they're saying there's gonna be what is trey gowdy doing by the way what are some of these republicans doing oh we have to investigate this now 
Why? What do they have to investigate? They're gonna they're gonna hold hearings over over Ivanka's emails, and also, does anyone think that if the shoe were on the other foot, if the very fancy high heeled shoe with uh, classic Italian leather, no, but I mean, if, if we're on the other foot, would would Democrats be calling for an investigation of you know a member of the Obama family it, again if the Obama family member was actually in a senior government position? Well, the answer is no. We all know that. Republicans love to play, you know, who can out Boy Scout the other one at exactly the wrong moment. And, you know, you do enough of that, you end up in Jeff Flake's situation where it's like, oh, you're not a Boy Scout. You're actually just you're actually just a turncoat that no one can trust. I worry about it. But the email, like I said, it's going nowhere except they're going to make something out of it. Sometimes the story catches my eye, team, that's not in the usual realm of what we discuss and this is definitely one of them but i've I've just got i've got some questions so a tourist and he's actually a really a i guess a self-styled traveling missionary uh, was killed on this island called north sentinel island which is uh on the andaman islands deep deep in the indian ocean and this this is this whole story just it's it's worth reading about it's pretty I mean, it's pretty bizarre but some interesting stuff going on in the background of it so you have the the Edmund Islands this american tourist who was killed by arrows by the local tribesmen as soon as he set foot on shore and that's because the sentinelese which is what they call the inhabitants of north sentinel island are one of the very few tribes in the world who are completely cut off from the outside world. Uh, they, they have no contact with the outside world whatsoever. They have no electricity. Uh, they became famous a few years ago. Some of you may have seen this, where a helicopter flew over the island and the Sentinelese were firing arrows at the helicopter. You know, I mean, wooden bow and arrows, like Stone Age weapon stuff. Uh, at the at the helicopter, but as you know, they, Stone Age. You get hit with a Stone Age arrow, you're still hit with an arrow, obviously, and that's what happened with this guy who got killed. They also apparently wrapped a rope around 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 his neck. John Chow, 27 years old, he was an American, and and he was killed. And you have this tribe that's completely cut off from uh, from the rest of of the world. In fact, the Indian Navy isn't even allowed to spend any time uh, on the island not allowed to approach the inhabitants. There's only 150 of them. So it's, it's this, this small tribe of people, and they're, they're known to be very hostile to anyone. I mean, they essentially attack anyone who comes on the island, which, you know, I, I would note that we have this idea of, of, the, uh, you know, of indigenous peoples around the world as, uh, you know, pre, in the pre-colonial, pre-Western expansion era, of living at some level of peace and harmony with nature and with each other. And actually, there was a lot of constant warfare. Uh, There's a lot of fighting over land and and uh, hunting grounds. And people have been killing people, uh, p- killing each other for as long as they've been able to lift rocks and throw stones. Okay, so uh, the, the, we, we have this very, uh, very out of out of uh, touch with reality view often, especially from the academy and from the media of how, you know, well, before before the European explorers showed up, it's like, well, the Aztecs actually were eating each other. So I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they were 
that advanced as a society uh, by, by our modern standards, which is what we're judging so much by these days, right? Uh, you know, we, we can't even watch sitcoms from the 90s because they're so offensive. So we're constantly changing our standards. But back to this North Sentinel lease, I mean, I just wish that I had some sense of what this guy's, what this guy's thinking was. Who, you know, it's tragic that he was killed, I and mean, what, what a waste. And he, he, he's 27 years old. He got a ride with some local fishermen. They've arrested the fishermen as responsible for his murder. They're not actually going to arrest any of the Sentinelese. I, I don't know how you know Indian law applies here, but this is essentially a situation where if you land on this island and they kill you, like too bad you landed on their island. You know, if you were shipwrecked here and you got full of spears, your bad luck that you landed on North Sentinel Island. But then there's this this other part of me that just wants to know. Whose idea is it to decide that this 150 people will live this way? Almost like it's some kind of an exhibit uh, at a, you know, at a museum or something. You know, who thinks that there should be people that are cut off from the world? You know, they're definitely living in much greater uh, poverty and much greater difficulty than they would with the modern conveniences we have for medicine and other things. I just think this is so strange. What, what is the thinking here? You create this this tiny enclave, this island where you know, there's no contact. No one's allowed to land there. Not even the military's allowed to land there. And you've preserved this this ancient way of life. I, you know, one day someone's going to do like a vice special or something from North Central Island, and you know, all of a sudden they'll be walking around wearing, you know, I don't know, you know, t-shirts from the. 20, 2022 you know, World Series or something, and we'll be like, oh, okay, so, you know, another one, another one that uh, is just part of the rest of the world of commercialism and everything else we've got going on. But I, this is just a fascinating little story. The, f- the fact that there's even a place in the world where there's an island where people, 150 people live, and they have no contact. I mean, they've never, they've never seen an iPhone. They've never seen a television. They've never used a phone. They've, in in the year 2018, soon to be 2019, I, I just think that's pretty remarkable. They're still hunting with, not comp, I mean, some of you are like, Buck, I bow hunt. No, no, not composite compound bows with, you know, 120-pound pole pressure at all. No, 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 no. Uh, they're using it old school. Uh, it's, just, it's just a really interesting story. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. And, and it's, it's sad, obviously, this guy's family. I, I guess he thought he was going to, convert all 150 members of this island and was a true believer in all that but it's not a good plan I'm here to tell you today that the reality is that there are currently over 6,200 individuals camped out south of the U.S. border in Tijuana today as I stand here. In Mexicali, there are more than 3,000 caravan members. The crisis is real and it is just on the other side of this wall. We're the most welcoming country in this world. We welcome more refugees in the United States than every other country in the world combined. Mm. So enough. And you can't want to be a part of the greatest country on earth and not respect our laws. Mm. Seeking a better life doesn't, doesn't qualify for asylum. Mm. So they're committing fraud. So that's just a stone cold fact. This president needs to do what, which hasn't happened in the past, is once they, if they get to the United States and enter, they need to be detained until they see a judge. Because 
So Central American population is running around 89 to 91% will lose their case right. because they don't qualify for asylum. But they have to be in custody when they lose the case so they can be removed, which sends a strong message to the rest of the world that we are a nation of laws. We'll, we'll give you a due process, but you got to live by the judge's decision also. Got to stop this catch and release process, folks. And by the way, notice how there's, what, 6,000 now at the border? Two weeks ago, we were being mocked for even talking about the caravan by the left-wing media. Oh, there's not going to be a caravan at the border. It's all going to break up. There's not going to be there. They're never going to get there. They can't walk there. These people are idiots, okay? It was obvious what was going to happen. Once the caravan had formed, they were going to get assistance and help, which they did to take transport to the border uh, you know, of the U.S. and Mexico instead of the U.S. Gu- I mean, the Mexico-Guatemala border. That's exactly what happened. I said that's what was going to happen here. I've been asking about all this. So yeah, they're probably going to hop on a bus, which is what, or trains, which is what they did. But, you know, the, the people that were mocking, mocking the notion of the caravan crisis a week or two ago, now they're experts on asylum law. You see, they've just switched their expertise from caravan travel routes to asylum. Uh, because ultimately, this is one of these issues where if you're willing to just separate yourself from the reality if you're willing to just forget about what we all know is obviously going to be the case which is that these people are not going to be uh they're not going to be kicked out of the country once they're let into the country there won't be the interior enforcement to actually follow through on the law you get to just be the person that's like i just want to welcome everybody i just want to welcome everybody to america i'm so welcoming yeah that's a a more uh, you know, self-indulgent position to be sure. I mean, it'd be nice to just say, you know, but I also feel like I, I wish that the, uh, you know, I wish that the the government would just pay for everyone's housing and everyone's food and everyone's medical care and everything's fine. You know, I wish all that were the case. But you know what? It's not the case. It's not a good idea either. And the government, it wouldn't work that way. You know, this is, it's just like what Thomas Sowell said about socialism. The best reason for it is it sounds good. The biggest reason against it doesn't work. And open borders and the destruction of sovereignty may make some people feel good, but over the long term, and in fact, depending on where you live in the country over the short term, it's really destructive and it is lawless. The biggest difference between our country and our society and our southern neighbors, Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, the biggest difference we have, other than our language, is rule of law. Laws here count. Laws here are enforced. Not perfectly, but overall and in general. With the exception of a lot of immigration law. That's where the that's where the big hole is. That's where you got, you know, 20 million people in the country illegally. Yeah, those laws don't count. And then you've got the Dersh running around. Sometimes I think the Dersh is great on stuff. Other times the Dersh the Dersh lets me down a little bit. The Dersh is, you know, r- running around and, and he's saying that this is different than the travel ban. Play clip nine. It's not like the travel ban. The travel ban, the president was explicitly authorized by statute to decide which countries to prohibit immigration from. On asylum, the president doesn't have that authority statutorily, but he has the broad constitutional authority to control our borders. That's right. That's what I've been saying. The president, the president is correct here. He can say, uh-uh, you can't come into the country. Sorry. He has that constitutional authority to defend this country. See, this is, 
This is where the real disconnect is with the left, with the Democrats. Borders are an issue of security, of national security. Who's coming into this country and who doesn't? The commander-in-chief has a say in that that can override specifics of some of these congressional statutes. You know, this is this would be like, you know, if Congress passed a law that said the president can't repel an invasion, the president can turn around and say, oh, sorry, constitutionally, I can act to repel an invasion without, you know, your say so. I have I have an absolute right as the commander in chief to defend this country and its immediate national security interests. Now, I know people say, oh, Buck, that would have to be litigated and argued. Well, yeah, but but there is there is a very well-established jurisprudence around that. And that's why this this Ninth Circuit, this Ninth Circuit judge, it's just the same thing you always get. It's the hashtag resistance judiciary. It's the, the last line of. Obama is to defense against Trump's executive authority, and they'll abuse it as much as they can. They don't care that they're wrong, just like they don't care that the Russia probe is going nowhere at the end of the day. The point is to do it. The point is to abuse your authority. The point is to go for it when you can. Uh, So, you know, I I think that Trump is going to win at the Supreme Court level on this issue, but also... You look at the Congress and, you know, look, this should have been dealt with. This should have been dealt with by the Republican majority. I'm sorry, but they're they're not getting a good grade from me on immigration here. All right. They had a majority in the House and the Senate. And, you know, damn it, if there needed to be a shutdown of the government. Oh, yeah, the one that's there's not going to be a shutdown coming up. Please. Now, I don't think so. But they needed to have this fight. They needed to change some of the immigration laws. And they didn't do it. They weren't willing to do it. And now we're going to suffer the consequences. We're going to be right back to where we were before Trump got elected, where it's going to be a question of, is America over or not in the next election? Because if amnesty happens, America's never the same. It's never the same. You might have heard me talk about Snippy.com. Well, it's a new social media site that doesn't have any of the left-wing bias you see with many of those other platforms you already know about. If you've looked at Snippy.com in the past and left, you need to look again. Yesterday I was on posting. i got to tell you, they've done some great new stuff. Thousands of my listeners have joined Snippy.com, expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. You see, Snippy's an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely, with no suppression from administrators. Snippy.com is a place where everyone is free to express their thoughts and share their opinions. And by the way, totally free to join. You got nothing to lose. Go check it out. Find some members of Team Buck there to chat with. Free to join, open to everyone. Snippy.com, again, with an updated user interface and exciting new features. It's also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android. Snippy.com is your new alternative social media. I think it is winding down. The president's answering of these questions doesn't happen in a vacuum. The other things we see are, for example, special counsel Mueller is evidently going to allow General Flynn to be sentenced. It looks like Manafort is heading towards sentencing. I can tell you as an experienced former prosecutor that if you're intending to bring another big case and you think you have these witnesses who would be cooperating witnesses in that case, You don't let them get sentenced. You have them testify first, and then they get sentenced down the road. Just the fact that we have 
indictments that are brought, he's letting the witnesses or the potential witnesses get sentenced. That sure signals like things are winding down. I certainly hope our friend Andy McCarthy is is right. I know he's not the only one who's saying it, but, you know, when Andy says it, it adds a little oomph. You know, it adds a little, there's a little more gravitas behind it. This analysis that the Mueller probe is winding down. What, what a... What a just a circus the whole thing has been. I mean, what a waste of resources, a waste of time. Our elections are not any safer. We haven't had any change in U.S.-Russia posture. Russia still is going to meddle when it wants to meddle and do weird things on the Internet. And, you know, it's up to us to try to offset that with whatever defensive and countermeasures we have, right? But the whole thing, I mean, this was... In, in my first year in, uh, on syndicated radio, which was 2017, uh, th- this was the story that you just you couldn't escape, right? It was all the time and day after day. Oh, this Russia theory, that Russia theory, this person. That. I remember when the, the Don Trump Jr. Kushner Trump Tower meeting came out. Oh, my gosh, it was the end of the Trump. Pre- it was the end of the Trump presidency over and over again. Of course, all that was just hyperbolic crap it was nonsense it was not actually what we were at least if you believe the media led to believe Um, it was just them playing out this fantasy in real time about how trump didn't really win the election how there was this russian hand behind it all and i i have become exhausted with with the this story because there's so little new information they ever add to it either oh you know they're now and the information we want they're either redacting or we haven't gotten yet. You know, the information we really want to get, things like, oh, did General Flynn actually lie to the FBI or did they just decide to claim a scalp early on here to make this whole thing seem more legitimate and and make a very shady judgment call that, yeah, he kind of lied, so let's act like he lied. They're going to be sentencing him soon. But oh, I think Flynn should be pardoned. I'm just going to come out and say it. I think Flynn should be pardoned. Uh, I don't think they lied about anything that was material. Right, people say, oh, he lied, he lied. Yeah, well, guess what? There are actually some distinctions in what the lie, uh, there are some distinctions in the law about what lie is prosecutable and what lie is not. Uh, and and if they said, you know, did you discuss sanctions with Sergei Kizilyak on the phone? He goes, no, I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we talked about that. Or, you know, that could be a misremembering. That could be, and it all depends on the context, right? Is it a willful and you know, knowingly and willfully lying about a material fact. That's what he would have to, that's the threshold that the prosecutors would have to cross to get him. I just, I don't believe based on what we know, they crossed that threshold. I think that they just, they wanted to get Flynn. That's what I think quite obviously has been the case here. And, you know, who's been really good on this and and just barely held on to his congressional seat, from what I understand, is Devin Nunes who has been talking about this for a long time. And, you know, he's been a warrior on this issue. you got to give the guy credit. He's taken so much heat from the left-wing media, but he's been willing to stand up and say, I mean, this is just, this is just nonsense. And uh, here's, here is Devin Nunes with the latest on this. Play Clip 10. I mean, there was never any collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Sadly, you have like half of the Democrats in this country that believe that somehow the Russians changed votes in the last election. Uh, and the people who have been spreading this poison ought to be ashamed of themselves. So I'm glad that uh, that maybe this is coming to an end. But I will I will stress I still don't believe it. I won't believe it until I see it. I think there's some reluctance in the White House to to actually to actually go out and 
and release all the documents, the four buckets now, as we call them, of the, the Carter Page, FISA, the, the third renewal. We have the Bruce Orr 302s. We have the exculpatory evidence. And now we also have a fourth bucket of emails uh, that the FBI was sending around that shows that clearly they knew what they were doing before they went to the FISA court. I wonder why there is that reluctance. I mean, first of all, every, everything that Nunes is saying here, I, I essentially sign off on, agree with. You know, I think people should be ashamed, but they're not because this was always about partisan payback and they've achieved that. If the Mueller if the Mueller final report comes out next week and it and it entirely uh, clears Trump of any personal wrongdoing, which maybe it will, maybe it won't. It'll probably say something about, you know, uh, interference with government, something or something, not obstruction, but close to obstruction. That's what the Mueller report will probably say about Trump. And then they'll leave it up to the impeachment process, which is what they want to you know, be the only mechanism of justice that can be applied. So it won't be a criminal issue. It'll be a, a political judgment issue. But even if that happened, you got to say the left has gotten their way here. They have really hampered. They've really slowed down. They've weighed down the administration. They've, I mean, when I spoke to Trump about this a couple of months ago, he was fuming, and he should be. He's like, these people are nuts. I colluded with Russia to win the election. The guy was doing three you know, rallies, four rallies, five rallies a day sometimes, tens of thousands of people. He's a political phenomenon. And, and the secret sauce is some Facebook ad buys with you know, Vladimir Putin giving a wink and a nod. The secret sauce is, is somebody releasing some John Podesta emails that showed that they, you know, didn't really, the DNC wasn't fair to Bernie, which, by the way, they weren't. It was the truth. It's not even like it was a disinformation campaign. The Podesta emails, the DNC hack, all that we found out from that was stuff that was actually true. So, you know, what, what are we even really talking about with that? But Democrats got their way here. The, the process is the punishment. The whole purpose of this investigation was to conduct the investigation, to squeeze people, to put them under duress, to isolate the president, to scare away his allies. That was the motivation behind this from the start. Yeah, maybe in their in their dreams they thought we could, you know, Trump will mi- make some misstep. You know, I, I know a lot of them were hoping that Mueller would have this one-on-one showdown with Trump under oath and Mueller would finally get him with a perjury trap and Think about how that would have imagined for a moment they'd actually gotten their wish and Trump got a little Trumpy and was a little bit uh, fast and loose with an unimportant thing, you know, with with a some but something that Mueller might be able to make stick as a as lying under oath. Think of how divided the country would have been over that. I mean, think of the ramifications of we're going to bring criminal charges against the president for this, uh, you know, under, under perjury and lying under oath. Because we had him sit down for this bogus, bullcrap Russia collusion investigation. I mean, think about the way that people would react to that. Who were Trump? Think about me and you. I mean, how would we feel about that? This is really what they pull. This is the nonsense that's going on. You know, there's so much rewriting of the the Bill Clinton saga to make it seem like there was this Javert like Ken Starr who was going after him and Monsieur Valjean. Da, 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 da. Those of you who are Les Mis fans, you, you caught that weird reference I just made, but the rest of you are like, is Buck having some kind of a breakdown? Uh, 
but the the truth is that the Clinton stuff was all self-inflicted. The Clinton stuff was corrupt beyond anybody's, you know, beyond anyone's imagining. And, you know, I, I think that that's, that's often, as part of the retelling of things now, we're always led to believe that, oh, there's something so, you know, it was so unfair what they did to the Clintons. No, it's unfair what, the, what they did to themselves. It's unfair what they did themselves. By the way, the, uh, the Clinton Foundation uh, report is out. And I, you know, this is one of these things where I've been saying for a very long time that uh, that you will see how corrupt the Clintons are, and it will be very apparent. And I, I was at CNN doing on-air analysis in the election. I'm saying the Clinton Foundation, the fact that no one's looking into this, is appalling. The fact that nobody is really digging into what is clearly a pay-to-play scheme, and they're they're. Uh, their full, you know, donations and everything for 2017 have now been have now been put out there, um, and you know they went from getting basically 120 million dollars plus in donations to 20 million dollars plus. Yeah, that's right. All of a sudden, no one cares about charity. All of a sudden, no one cares about these causes. There, oh, oh, you mean they weren't donating to the Clintons because? They wanted to help the world. You mean they were buying access and influence? You mean the Clintons created a charity that was really a front for buying a seat at the table with the Clintons when she was going to be president, which is what everybody thought? It is disgusting. And there were so many people, and I, I could even I could even name some names. So many people who were just a part of the Clinton lies. The Clinton lies around this issue. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. It's all just about charity work. That's why when she's not going to be president ever anymore, all of a sudden the donations almost just, just evaporate. The whole thing was a corrupt scheme. I'm glad that Congress says that they're going to look into this. I, I like this announcement from Mark Meadows. We broke it on the Hill that there's going to be more because we should look deeper into the Clinton Foundation. There's, there's not just smoke there. There's fire. Fundamentally, we have returned to a nation that has decided it should be very difficult for people of color to vote. It was racially driven. I'm going to say if she'd had a fair election, she already would have won. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, Brian Kemp, the man who basically pickpocketed Jim Crow and turned turned this election into a voter suppression election. He has been blocking African-Americans from voting for some time now. I think that Stacey Abrams election is being stolen from her using uh, uh, what I I think are insidious measures to disenfranchise uh, certain groups of people. And neither party is the law and order party, but clearly the Republicans always try to p- posture and position themselves that way, but they use the law when it benefits them. They cheat to win elections. They disenfranchise voters. If Stacey Abrams doesn't win in Georgia, they stole it. It's clear. It's clear. How the Grinch stole Christmas, a.k.a. the elections down in Georgia. All lies, by the way. I want to just remind you that, yes, in the end, Kemp defeated Abrams, and that's the way it's going to be. But the same media that always tells you they're just there to just speak the facts, man, just tell you the truth. They're there to just make sure that we all know exactly what's going on and what happened and everything else. That same media is not at all 
feeling chastened or uh, in any way like they should change their attitudes about anything after running with these wild accusations about the Georgia election based in, in no actual information. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. They have, there's no evidence that Kemp did any of these things. None. And all you have to do is look at Georgia election law. And no, this is all mythology. It was spread by the media in an echo chamber fashion without the most basic fact checking. I, I was astonished. Look, I, I, I have to research state by state how elections, who's in charge of what and what's going on. I mean, you know, there's a lot of states, you know, Obama says 57. I say 50. There's a lot of states out there. And when you look into what the truth is about Georgia, you find out that Kemp had nothing to do with the move, you know, the, the moving uh, polling places, which had been moved since 2012. Kemp had nothing to do with these different voter suppression measures, which were all approved at the county level by different elected boards of, you know, election people. It has nothing to do with him. I mean, this would be like blaming me for the crappy primetime lineup at CNN. I agree that CNN primetime lineup is full of clowns and jokers, but it's not my fault. I didn't do that, right? Don't yell at me. They're blaming Kemp, and they're telling all these stories of voter suppression. Meanwhile, they had record turnout. So if there was a voter suppression effort, it was the worst voter suppression effort ever because it, it w- would have backfired. You had higher turnout than you usually would have in Georgia for governor's election. Much higher turnout, in fact, uh, depending on the year you compare it to. And just, just the, the recklessness of these media allegations. They don't, they don't go back and correct anything. I mean, that's why in the immortal words of the one and only Mr. Rush Limbaugh, the drive-bys, yeah, they just leave wreckage in their wake. You're wreckage and destruction and misery, and they just keep on driving. You know, just They just destroy, destroy, and then they go on to the next thing. They don't go back and correct. They were spreading lies about this Georgia election. And you know who was at the very forefront of spreading those lies? The Democrat candidate herself, Stacey Abrams. Play clip four. It was not a free and fair election. It was not fair to the, the thousands who were forced to wait in long lines. It was not fair to the thousands that were put on hold with their registrations. Is he the legitimate governor-elect of Georgia? He is the person who won an adequate number of votes. But that's, you're not using the word legitimate. Is he the legitimate governor-elect of Georgia? He is the legal governor of Georgia. Won't say legitimate. Won't say legitimate because she doesn't think he is, or she at least is telling people he's not. That's disgusting. That's disgusting. I remember when the big knock on on Trump was that he wasn't going to accept the 2016 election results. Remember that? And now we've gone through, as a nation, been dragged through two years of left-wing delusion where they've been refusing to accept election results. And we see that they've learned nothing as a result of all this. I mean, nothing, nothing has changed with them. They still very clearly have a sore loser attitude anytime there's an important election that doesn't go their way. And yet I'm quite sure the next time around they'll be willing to say, well, if Trump doesn't win re-election, he may refuse to accept the results. You know, this is just something that they say. This is something that they will push out there and, and the rest of us are supposed to just accept this for some for some reason. We're supposed to accept that this is, uh, you know, th- that there's this... I mean, Jonah Goldberg actually wrote about it this week for uh, National Review. He's like, there's just a huge double standard in the media coverage of this. Of course there is. Yeah, there's a huge double standard. 
You know, for, and as I've said uh, in the last few days, for Democrats, it's, you know, heads we win, tails you lose. That's the way elections go. You either, you either didn't win legitimately, you know, you cheated, or we're going to still bash you for not accepting the election results, even if you accept them, right? Because we're going to say that you weren't going to accept them ahead of time. I mean, it's, and they're going to say it the next time too, even, even when the conservatives, even when Republicans go, okay, we lost that one. They go, oh, well, the, you know, maybe they will. They're going to try to suppress the next one. They're going to try to, to cheat in the next one. You know, there's no good faith that they offer on this ever. I mean, you'll notice this is a recurring theme. The left doesn't, doesn't approach our side with good faith on much of, on much of anything these days. So, and it, it's troubling. That's probably, but this whole, oh, by the way, Mia Love actually ended up losing out in uh, Utah, which was a surprise to some folks. So I guess Trump was right when he said maybe she should have been a little nicer to Trump. <laughs> it looked like maybe Mia was going to get the last laugh, but nope. That is not, that is not in fact what happened. It turned out that uh, she probably would have been better off being a little more pro-Trump and a little less you know, off on her own there. Um, speaking of the, uh, speaking of the way that these elections have, have, shaken out i've just got to say you know there there's also um this this sentiment that that continues to get this attention to the left that there's no such thing as voter fraud you know they they always say they always say this they'll say there's no voter fraud to speak voter fraud is not a problem folks right there's there's no why would anyone do it they say and this reminds me of when they talk about how women don't lie about sexual assault. Well, there are actually are very important, prominent cases where women have lied. Doesn't mean all women do. It means some women do. Very few people engage in voter fraud as a percentage, but people do engage in voter fraud. And, you know, this is a story that's going to get just the most superficial treatment, most superficial coverage. And it's out of uh, out of California, no less. Here's the story from MB- from NBC. Nine people were charged in connection with a voter fraud scheme in which homeless people in Los Angeles's Skid Row neighborhood were given cash and cigarettes in exchange for fraudulent signatures on ballot initiatives, petitions, and voter registration forms. Prosecutor said Tuesday, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office wouldn't identify a motive or details of the alleged scheme. But in May, uh, two news organizations discovered that initial allegations connected uh, to three of the nine suspects involved in gathering signatures for ballot initiatives. This is voter fraud, which we talk about and we know it exists, but it isn't exactly something that patrol officers deal with. LAPD Detective Megan Aguilar said on uh, said back in May. So, you know, this is a felony complaint about people circulating petitions with false names, voter fraud, registering a fictitious person, registering non-existent persons. And you could say, Buck, why would anyone take this risk? Why would anyone be so dumb as to risk their own freedom and you know their own future to try to get some extra signatures for a ballot initiative? And I say to you, I don't know. You know, some people will rob a convenience store with a gun for $20 and go to jail for 20 years. I mean, people do things, but in the elections that we just saw, the margin of of uh, victory was so narrow in some of these cases that you wouldn't need a big scheme of fraud at all to throw the election to one side or the other. I mean, when you're talking about a separation of just thousands or even hundreds of votes, that's not hard to do. That's not hard to rig. 
So I, I, I highlight the story just because you will continue to hear the left never budges on this. They start off with there's no such thing as voter fraud. And they hope that people just believe that. And then when they're called out on that lie, they say, well, voter fraud's not a big problem. It's not a real problem. No, it's a problem. It happens. People cheat in elections. Don't forget, because they what they want to do is make it seem like any voter integrity measures are about racism and voter suppression. That's, the, that's their preferred storyline here. That's what they say it is. Meanwhile, oh, no, it's actually about fraud and preventing it. Down with this, bring it in the prospect. I say we trust until we don't. We got ourselves in deep, brother. You're in this now, son. No getting out. That's from Mayans MC, a new show on FX. Just had its first season out this year. We have one of the actors from Mayans joining us now, Vincent Vargas. He's an army vet and also the author of a new book, Light the Fuse, that is out now. Vincent, thank you so much for for giving us some time. (laughs) Thank you. I'm just honored to be on here. First of all, man, tell us, how did you transition from being in the service to being on a a show that's a spinoff of Sons of Anarchy? How'd that happen? Uh, it was crazy. I, I started out doing YouTube about six years ago. YouTube videos, and then from there, kind of progressed. Uh, you know, me and my friends produced our own movie, and then from there, kind of continued to progress and trying to grow in the space. So I didn't want to be a YouTube guy my whole life. I wanted to try and step into the mainstream media. And I went to one audition. They needed a big Mexican with tattoos, and luckily, I fit the part. <laughs> Wait, did you did you get did you really get your first audition? It, it went your way. That's and I feel like in Hollywood, that's like impossible. <laughs> that never happens. Yeah, it, it, it's unheard of. I mean, I've, I've done so much work on my own from filming my own stuff, producing my own stuff. They had enough content to find to see what I was able to do in my, my capacity of acting. And so, um, you know, for the character, uh, it worked perfectly. So I was just very fortunate. And uh, what did you do when you were in the Army? Uh, I was the second of the 75th Ranger Regiment. I did that for four years. Uh, deployed three times with them, and then I got out, and I'm still currently in the reserves right now. I'm an Army drill sergeant. Wow, okay, man. Well, t- tell me tell me a bit about this book that just you just have it out now, Light the Fuse. Yeah, you know, um, throughout the years of being, being on social media and becoming, you know, someone that people follow, you know, and being out there to influence, I decided I wanted to bring a lot of my life experiences and put them on paper for others to, to follow. I've been doing a lot of public speaking about transitioning out of the military and, and some of the toxic mindsets I've had myself. And what I wanted to do is put that on paper. You know, I wanted to give people the honest answer. Of, well, here's what happened to me. Here's the things that I went through. Here's the negatives and the positives. What went well? What didn't go so well? You know, and I felt that, you know, since I am in, in the limelight right now, um, if I can provide some kind of value uh, to, to other veterans getting out and having trouble with transition, then, then so be it. What, what were some of your challenges? I mean, to talk us through some of this. Oh, man. You know, uh, being special operations for so long, I, I was so dedicated to the job. I committed to it more than I did my family. Um, and, and it cost me that. You know, I went through, I've been through two divorces now because of my addiction to being uh, good at my job, uh, choosing work over family. And uh, now at my age, I've missed so many years of my kids' lives from birthdays to recitals to, 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 to births that uh, I refuse to do that anymore. I choose 
to say yes to family more often. And this is something I talk about in the book and balance. I try and balance my life. Uh, and it was never so balanced before. And so that's why I was, you know, one of my struggles was, you know, I became a single parent of four kids and now I had to balance my life. And so when that happened, it really changed my mindset of all the decisions I've, I've, I've made throughout the years of my, my career. And in that in that career transition, Vincent, when when you finally decided you were going to get into the 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 content creation business, how did you make that jump? It was tough, you know. Um, My friend is one of my friends, Matt Best. We were in Ranger Town together. Oh, you're friends with Matt? I love Matt from Black Rifle. I didn't realize you and Matt are friends. That's great. I'm the big Mexican guy in all his videos. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize that. Uh, something funny, yeah. you know. I, I, we were connected through Nick Irving, the Reaper. I didn't realize you and Matt Best were friends. Now, now you're like family. But continue on. You were saying, <laughs> yeah. So me and Matt, uh, we were in Second Ranger Battalion. He started Article 15 Clothing. I lived in El Paso at the time. We started doing videos together because he said he needed some help. It from there, it grew. It, it grew, you know. And I learned about this by watching Matt and JT, the two guys who started Article 15 with the other guys. And so as I continued to watch their progress and how they did it. You know, I was learning. I was just like a private on a job. I was sitting there and learning from them, learning what they do. And as it got to the point where I wanted to branch off and focus on the, what I felt more passionate about was my family and, and helping veterans in my aspect and where I believed I was more powerful in, uh, I decided to go my own route, you know. And, you know, we still own Let's Singers Whiskey together. You know, we still work on several ventures together. But, you know, I had to focus on what I was more passionate about, and it was, it was trying to speak uh, on the transition side of things for veterans. If you could go back and tell younger you, and we're speaking to Vincent Vargas, author of uh, Light the Fuse. Vincent, if you go back and tell younger you, right when you were making that uh, initial decision, that initial period when you're transitioning out of, of special operations, what would that one piece of advice be? Man, it would be not to slow down. I felt that once I got stagnant, man, I started pointing fingers. You know what I mean? And when I started pointing fingers, you know, I let drinking uh, slow me down. And then, and then it was just this downward spiral of crap because, you know, because I was, I was, I was the fear of missing out. I, I felt like I was missing out on what the guys are doing overseas. I was so worried about what they're doing. I stopped thinking about what I was doing. And as they're continuing their lives, I was, I was depleting. I was not in, I was not improving. And that killed me because it set me back several years, I believe, you know, it set me back a while. And for me to finally, figure it out. I eventually got into the border patrol and that started my path, but it really, that was still just an, another, I was still just doing the same job I was doing in the military now for the border patrol, you know, but I would definitely tell myself to just keep, keep going towards the mission, keep, keep moving. Cause once I got stagnant is when I really started feeling more depressed and having a lot of issues with that. Hey, I, I hear you. I always tell myself, and it's been a mantra that I've adopted for the last 10 years, just take action, take action much better than the alternative. First of all, Vincent, thank you for your service. Uh, good luck to you with uh, the show Mayans and uh, also with the book Light the Fuse. You can get it on Amazon. It's Vincent's stories, some advice. And uh, Vincent, really appreciate you joining. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, my friend. Come back anytime. For sure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, team. We'll be back in just a few moments here with our buddy Sean Parnell. So Trump has gotten a lot of attention recently. Uh, from people that want to criticize him over what he says about people with military, some people with military service, uh, what he's done with regard to the troops and and, and all of that. And, and there's even this poll that the Hill, where I work, put out that says that 88 percent of people uh, want 
or, or believe the president should visit troops in war zones. So I figured let's actually bring somebody on who's got combat service in the military, uh, also a best-selling author, decorated war hero, all-around kick-ass guy, great American. Sean Parnell is with us now, everybody. He is the author of Outlaw Platoon, which is a, a nonfiction about his time in Afghanistan. Great book. I've read it cover to cover. Also the author of the new novel, Man of War, which is very highly regarded and doing very well. Mr. Sean Parnell, great to have you back. It is great to be here. I'm excited to be with you. Thank you, my friend. So can we, let's just start with some of this, okay? Because I, I feel like, on, on the one hand, you know, you, you hear all this stuff about Trump all the time, about how, and you're hearing it from the media, of course, but they're saying, well, Trump hasn't vid- visited our troops uh, in, in the war zones. He hasn't been overseas to visit them. And, and I always want to say, OK, the poll about whether Americans think the president should do that matters less to me than if we could get a poll of do the troops want him to visit? Do they really care um, about him visiting them in the war zones, per se? I just want to pose this to you, man. What, what do you think? I mean, is this is this a miss? Is this a misstep by the president? You know what I do? I, it does bother me a little bit that he hasn't visited the troops uh, in either Iraq, Afghanistan, or, or somewhere else. Um, you know, his title is Commander-in-Chief, and so I think that the president, uh, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, Buck, I don't care. I, but I, I think that the president has a duty and obligation to our troops before anything else. He's their commander. And, you know, it would be kind of a pain when you're, when you're in combat. You know, a VIP comes. It's always kind of a pain to sort of cease combat operations and Get out of your get out of your rhythm a little bit to accommodate those types of visitors. Everybody hates the dog and pony show, but I, I do think that deep down inside, the, the troops, like when you're in those types of situations, it does matter that that it does matter to them, man. I mean, it's really important to know that the president, your commander in chief, has your back when you're in the field and, and you're putting. I mean, you're putting your life on the line every single day uh, when you're over there. I mean. Uh, you, you know, in many cases, I mean, you, you convince yourself that you're living on borrowed time and you want to know that the mission worth it. And I think I think the president communicates that the mission is worth it by simply showing up, you know. And, and so, you know, on the other hand, the, the president's only been in office, I mean, what, two years now. So he has some time, but I would like him to make it a priority because I do think it's important. Why do you think he hasn't gone? I mean, I, I, I feel like the two groups that this president deep down does have a lot of respect for at, at his core and, and is pretty unwavering on in terms of the way he, he feels about them in general, are military and law enforcement. I agree. I agree. And it's, it's difficult to know. I think, you know, I read an article today about uh, Mattis telling him that he should be hesitant about visiting war zones. And I'm not entirely sure why uh, SecDef Mattis gave him that advice. But if I if I were advising the president, I would I would tell him, look, you know, the Secret Service is going to is going to have your back when you're over there. They're going to make sure that you're safe uh, while you're in these war zones. But you got to go. We got to make time for it on the schedule. Uh, just to sh- <laughs> like, like I said before, like so much of being a leader, whether you're a combat leader uh, or some sort of political leader in Washington, it's just you just got to show up. You got to show up and show that you care. And it, it, it's inconvenient. You know, it takes time. Out of, uh, there's a lot of things that the president needs to be focused on here domestically. In fact, his agenda, putting putting America first, uh, is is a major part of his agenda. But 
there are troops serving in harm's way, and I do think he needs to make the time to go talk to them and meet them because it is important. Do you think that he's also – is he starting to develop a problem with – you know, he went after McRaven a little bit. And I know McRaven goes after him, right? And McRaven's a Democrat. Just, you know, he's a Democrat who served his country honorably, but the guy's a Democrat and he Absolutely. got in the political realm, Absolutely. right? I mean, this is – you know, we can try to – we can walk and chew gum. We can separate these things uh, as, as adults do. But that said, I mean, you know, now people are always saying, you know, he went after McCain's service. He made that crack about, uh, uh, you know, getting bin Laden faster. And, you know, there's some of this stuff. Do you think he's is he creating a problem for himself with this where even even some of his look? I mean, I'm sitting here. I'm a, I'm a pretty strong Trump defender. And I'm like, I kind of wish he would just not do that thing sometimes. I, I agree. I mean, I look, I, I didn't like when he went after McCain. I thought that was tasteless and unnecessary. And I called him out on it then. Um, you know, but I, I think that the McRaven comment, uh, you know, I mean, it's, pe- people don't like Trump's style. I get that. But I, everybody wanted to catch bin Laden sooner. And I think what Trump, you know, he later clarified his remarks to say, like, look, we had ample opportunity from Clinton to President Bush or, well, mostly under Clinton's presidency. We had ample opportunity to go after and catch bin Laden before 9-11 happened. And, and while I think his comments could have been phrased better. Uh, and made into less of an attack on McRaven. I mean, I think every, I think everybody would have liked to catch Bin Laden sooner and faster than. than yeah, I, I do think that one that was more of a of a the way Trump speaks thing instead of I don't think Trump was yeah, trying right. to be disrespectful to anybody and uh, you know but but I also I, I, am always I, I, torn I, I, with I this. Say, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with Trump. I don't have a problem with with the president. You know, exercising his First Amendment right to, to, to criticize who he wants to criticize, like this this idea that. You know, oh, well, it's, it's not presidential. And I, I, I guess I just I find myself scratching my head at, well, who gets to define what's presidential? You know, I, I, to me, I, part of what I like about Trump, and I think part of what his appeal is to the masses, and believe me, I'm surrounded by blue dog Democrats out here that are going to vote for him again in 2020. There's no question about it. Part of his appeal is that he doesn't always say the things that you like, but at least you know he means what he's saying. You know, and, and there's a certain appeal to that. And, and it, it, whether whether or not it's it's, you know, people just think that he's authentic, Buck. And I think that that is the appeal, whether you like what he says or not. People people feel that he is being honest with them. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Definitely. Definitely lets it fly. So, <laughs> all right, I mean, you know, there, there's some interesting, interesting shades here to the conversation with the president. But I, I want to switch gears because obviously, Sean, we're all going to be stuffing our faces here pretty soon. It is, it is the one day of the year, I guess, other than your birthday with birthday cake, when it's just expected that you're going to loosen up the belt and go for it big time. What are some of the either culinary secrets or wonderful Thanksgiving traditions of the, the Parnell crew stretching back for generations? Well, we, we all, I mean, we always do turkey and we always do gravy. We always have ham. And on occasion, we'll, we'll have pasta, right? Because I come from, you know, half of my family is Italian. Uh, so we do spaghetti uh, with with meatballs as well. Um, it's you know, and I think I think for us the, the most important thing about Thanksgiving is you know getting together with your family and celebrating family. You know, all too often in our culture today, I mean, it's like, I mean, we I feel like in many cases we don't focus on the things that matter to us enough and just like take a deep breath and look around and, and appreciate the things that we have. And, and part of what I try to do with, with, with my family and my, my kids especially is teach them to appreciate the food on the table. 
Because, I mean, you know, having been deployed to Afghanistan and was in Korea and really been all over the world uh, during my time in the Army, the other countries don't have the same things that we do. And, and while, it's, while you do appreciate other cultures and the time spent in those countries, for the most part, it's always nice to come home. And, and just to be able to, like, go to the grocery store and get every type of food you can possibly imagine – and spread it all over the table and eat and then eat again and then eat again right before you go to bed. I mean, it's just something that other countries don't have. And it's something that I think that our kids, especially the next generation, need to learn to appreciate. Real quick, Sean, before we let you go, top of, top of mind, what are you thankful for right now, the, the, the two-sentence version? I'm just thankful for my family. You know, um, every year I just consider myself so blessed that – that I had a family that, that always supported me no matter what, you know, and, and, and also friends, you know. Uh, so I'm appreciative and thankful for those things. All right, man. I'm with you on that. Sean Parnell, everybody. Check out Man of War, his new novel, which you can get on Amazon. It's a great read. And uh, also, if you have not already, read his memoir of the front lines of Afghanistan, Outlaw Platoon. Sean, thankful for you, buddy. Thanks for coming on the show. As always, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. You too, man. All right, Timmy, I'm more on the way. Stay with us. Background checks can be a sensitive situation. Usually you go through with them, they're fine, right? But what about those murkier cases? What about where there's a red flag that comes up? You don't want your HR department to make any mistakes. You want them to have the information they need. That's why you need Global Verification Network. Global Verification Network is the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company they are federally certified as a veteran-owned small business i know the ceo personally mark buckman he is a great guy and his whole team will make sure that you get the best service and the most efficient possible answers to your cases when it comes to background investigation and vetting this is who you want no matter how big or small your company is to be doing your background checks and if you're going to have a company you got to have background checks for employees go to mygvn.com that's mygvn.com or call 877-695-1179. Global Verification Network, leave no stone unturned. In this case, we have students that are not prepared or not doing well, so we say perhaps we can solve the problem by capital or not capital letters. And it's kind of like, it's, it's a depressing moment. I've been a, well, my entire life in academia, and we used to think that British intellectual life was the hallmark of the Western world and that whatever mistakes we made, we could look toward Britain. This was T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and the Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford. And to think that they've fallen into the same sad uh, political correctness that we have is, is really depressing. Maybe too many people are going to college. Or, you know, it, you think that uh, we're losing this generation in the West that is worried about capital letters. They're not having children. They're not getting married. They're not buying homes. They're prolonging their adolescence. And maybe it's they shouldn't be in university. And they could be much better in noble professions like plumbing and electricity that we really need, trade schools. But something's gone wrong with the university. And it's not just pernicious to the student, but it's starting to affect the entire society at large. Victor Davis Hanson make, making a lot of sense there, I would note. Victor Davis Hanson saying a lot of things that, uh, we, well, we've been noticing for a while here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, but I got to tell you, this was a new one for me. The banning of capital letters. 
I had never come across this as a thing before. It turns out that at uh, Leeds Trinity University, which I guess is in the UK, they've been told in the journalism department to avoid capital letters. And I, I just, I don't, I, that's, usually I go, okay, I know why they, they think this is offensive or that is offensive, but they think in the journalism department, remember journalism is supposed to be about getting to truth, journalism is supposed to be about the exchange and de- dissemination of ideas, and in that department, they think that, that capital letters could, quote, scare them into failure and instead suggesting using a friendly tone and avoid the use of negative language in general. I got to say, if you're going to be a journalist who's worth reading, you're going to have to use a very, very negative tone on a lot of issues and certainly on the modern academy's view of creating a completely cloistered life of the mind. I mean, creating this life of the mind that doesn't have to deal with the trials and tribulations of, of being a an adult who is engaging with the world around him. I mean, this is the snowflake syndrome. I mean, we know all about this, but uh, this was a new one for me. I've never heard of banning capital, banning capital letters before. Uh, and, and I just had to note that you know, Victor Davis Hanson is like, what is going on? It's not just here in America. I, I don't know if we take comfort in that or if it should make us even more scared but it's not only in america that we have this it's it's in broader western society now and and it just makes me think about how there are these other countries where they don't they don't have this problem you know they're they're very sure of themselves maybe those countries and those cultures shouldn't be but they're not constantly being taught and teaching their next generation to undermine them undermine themselves, you know, to think less of their abilities in the world, to think less of their role in the world. I found this this New York Times piece, speaking of all this, uh, really interesting on China and how China is influencing our culture, American culture, in one of the most powerful ways that it can. Think about this for a moment. How many movies have you seen in the last 10 years where China are only near-peer economic and military competitor. How many movies have you seen where China isn't even necessarily the bad guy, but is depicted in an unflattering light? How many times have you seen uh, a major Hollywood picture recently where China was, you know, in in any way being undermined or, you know, you talked about Chinese human rights issues, things like that. Oh, there's a reason for that. And it's that the Chinese market is so large and so powerful that now they're making demands about how the American market depicts them. That's right. China is dictating to Hollywood how Hollywood will show Chinese issues in movies. And I don't mean Chinese language movies. I don't mean movies specifically about China. I mean blockbusters like Mission Impossible series movies, stuff like that. You, you'll you start to look at the list here if you go to this New York Times article and go, wow, China's involved in some very, very big movies. And, you know, the, the most the most clear example of this is that in Red Dawn, Wolverines, in Red Dawn, which is about the Soviet and Cuban invasion of the United States, it's kind of a, 
a, a cult film. I mean, I know a lot of you are like, fuck, it's amazing. I mean, it's okay. It, it has its moments. They, they did a remake of it in 2012, and Red Dawn Remade was supposed to have the, uh, the Chinese invading an American town. But guess what? MGM spent a million dollars digitally erasing evidence of the Chinese army in every single frame and substituted North Korea for China. That's it. Originally, it was an invasion by China, and then they changed it so that it was an invasion by North Korea. And this was at the request of the Chinese government slash Chinese market in their box office. They even got rid of a character called the Ancient One from Marvel Comics, who was an elderly Tibetan man, and replaced him in the Doctor Strange movie in 2016 with the actress Tilda Swinton playing a Celtic version of the Ancient One. So they turned a Tibetan into an Irishman, uh, which probably was a surprise to fans of the comics. And the uh, the movie Seven Years in Tibet, for example, um, really upset Hollywood, so much so that Brad Pitt isn't welcome. I'm sorry, upset China, so much so that Brad Pitt isn't welcome in China now because he starred in, in that movie. So they're involved in co-financing more and more of our own films. Now, part of this is obviously an economic incentive, but politics is downstream of culture, and our perceptions of ourselves vis-a-vis China and the world are affected by the, by the mass media depictions that we see. Oh, it also explains why the movie Great Wall was made. I told you that Matt Damon Great Wall movie was so bad that I couldn't get through 10 minutes of it. That was uh, Chinese-financed. $150 million China-Hollywood co-production, and it was a complete flop. I mean, it was a true... It was an unintentional disaster movie, as in the movie itself was a disaster. But you see these indicators, these early indicators right now, and there's only one way this is going, and that is that there's going to be a cultural and perception struggle that we have with China. And I just note that while we're being told don't use capital letters because it could scare us and you know we, we need to deal with our history of colonialism and racism, China is being told your rightful place in the world is number one. All their kids, all their generations coming up. That's going to have an effect. So Thanksgiving is a holiday, but is it non-controversial? Is the notion of coming together with friends and family to show our thanks for the blessings and the good things in our lives, is that something that we can all get behind? Or are the social justice warriors a little bit upset at the prospect of this thing called Thanksgiving? Is there... Is there some basis upon which or for which, through which, whatever the proper preposition is, that they can express their outrage about Thanksgiving? Now, is there something, oh, that's right, there is a sense out there among some on the left that Thanksgiving is, in fact, not just a day when we all eat too much, I think the average Thanksgiving feast comes in at something like 3,200 calories or something just just very gluttonous. Uh, don't worry, I'll top that. But is that, oh no, that's right, there's more than that. Because Thanksgiving, according to some folks on the social justice left, is racist. They're hosting an event called Thanks But No Thanksgiving. It's about decolonizing a holiday. Um, about finding the rage, the racial problems and the cultural problems with it. What do you think about that? That's great. I mean, 
<laughs> but like doesn't help natives does it yeah there's definitely a, a racial history to or a racist history to thanksgiving okay and that should probably definitely be addressed more um in education the whole concept of like taking land and um assigning a value to it through cost is like it was different through european cultures oh i mean yeah sure there are racist aspects of its history definitely what would you find racist um the fact that we're celebrating taking away land from natives okay okay it's pretty racist well just about like honestly like i'm not super educated on the topic but i just know that um it has to do with the way that the settlers kind of treated the uh, the native mm-hmm. um, the natives who lived here. Now that audio comes to us from campus reform, and, and they do this, right? They go around on college campuses and they ask people uh, questions to illustrate prevailing attitudes among college kids, usually about political issues, but on this one it's Thanksgiving, and it goes on and on. And to be fair, there there are some young people they ask who go, well, you know, I really think it's more about giving thanks and coming together as families, really not about uh, racism or colonialism. But but I also want to point out that, you know, for a lot of these young folks and, and myself and my peer group and really anyone included in this, sometimes it's, it's I think, too easy and we're, we can be too quick to point at them and be like, oh, they're so ignorant. Look at them. They don't know anything about this. And so they're just saying it's racist because they're so dumb. I mean, sometimes that's really warranted. But there's a component here that I can't help but notice. And that is, look, how many of us really know a detailed history of Thanksgiving off the top of our head? Very few. Very few. In fact, you know, we kind of know something about, you know, the pilgrims and Squanto and the natives and uh, there's some food exchange and there was maybe a tough harvest. That, you know, that we don't really get too, too into the details. And I think that in, instead of viewing this all the time as, oh, look at these Look at these kids who have been brainwashed. I also think it's look at the on a college campus, for example, look at the kind of totalitarian left wing echo chamber that they all live in such that it's not strange and it's not even beyond our comprehension why they would take this position. You know, if they have any doubt say it's racist. And I don't mean that because they think it's racist. I mean, as a form of self-preservation, that's where the culture is these days. You see what I mean? It's really about how if they don't immediately say, well, you know, you could always say, oh, it's not racist. Okay. And walk away from that. But if something is considered on the left to be racist or uh, full of oppression and colonialism and white privilege and all these these uh, terms and ideas that the, the left doesn't just embrace, but enforces them. I mean, that's the really key distinction. So as a, as a safe bet, if you're on a college campus and you're being asked about something and you know there's some generally vaguely racial aspect to it, you might as well err on that side, right? So So I have some sympathy for these college kids who don't know the history of Look, they should know maybe a little more of the history of Thanksgiving than they do. And some of them are obviously ideologues who are, oh my gosh, it's so racist. But you've also got to leave open the possibility that there are some who just just don't want to be accused of being racist themselves. And so when they when something comes up and it triggers that part of their mind that goes, uh-oh, I, I think that there's, I'm being asked if this thing is racist, 
maybe I should just be safe and go, yeah, this is kind of racist. Yeah, on the one hand, it's funny and it's worth pointing out and that's why we're doing it. But there's also a part of me that wants everyone to understand at least that that's not really a silly position for them to take under the circumstances. Better to be the person who goes along on a college campus and says, uh, yeah, yeah that's racist, right? Then be the person who goes, no, nah, that's not racist and have everyone start yelling at you. So I, I try to take different things from some of these encounters that we see on the, on the college campuses, and, and that would be one of them. And yes, Thanksgiving is about being thankful. So it's a pretty straightforward holiday. A lot of people I know say it's their favorite holiday, which is uh, interesting. I, I also, maybe another time we'll talk about how the Christian roots of Thanksgiving seem to often get uh, lost in our contemporary culture. Uh, for another time, roll calls up. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Our last Roll Call before Thanksgiving, team. Man, how the time does fly. I'm looking forward to it. I'm heading up to New York City to be with the fam, be with my family up there. I have two brothers who have birthdays this week. So Mace Man, if you're listening, also known as Mason, my older brother. Happy happy birthday in advance, because I won't be on air for your birthday. You're the greatest big brother guy I could ever ask for. And uh, I'm going to be celebrating with both my brothers, Mason and Keats, this weekend in New York. Mom is going to be cooking a fantastic turkey. She's incredible with her turkey, her turkey cooking skills. So I'm really looking forward to that. And, you know, my only thing is I, I, I feel like sometimes I want to mix the sweet potatoes and the mashed potatoes. And the thing about that is they're good on their own. I don't know if they're really good mixed together. They get a little accidentally mixed up, but do I want to intentionally mix sweet potatoes and mashed potatoes? These are the questions that keep me up at night. The good news is there's no arguing about politics in my family because everyone in my family is a sane, well-read, and thoughtful patriot. So we don't have to worry about that. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, at least everyone in my immediate family uh, falls into those, those categories. So... We have, oh, I put up a poll on Facebook, by the way. The best Thanksgiving side dish, sweet potatoes or stuffing. Uh, I have, I don't know, a thousand votes so far. We'll see what ends up. We'll see what the, to the total uh, total is when it, when it comes in. Now, uh, I said roll call, so let's do the roll call. Hold on, where, where did it go? Uh, here we go. We have... If Marie writes, if dressing had been an option, I would have chosen that. I do not like stuffing, but love dressing. Is, isn't that just another word for stuffing? Mark writes, smashed potatoes and gravy. Yeah, I can't argue with it. I mean, potatoes are fantastic. Jeff writes, green bean casserole. Uh, Josh writes, stuffing is trash. In the South, we eat dressing, and dressing is not a side. So wait, dressing is what you call stuffing in the South? I did, I did not know this. I was not aware of this. Uh, Joshua writes, cornbread dressing, Buck. Uh, okay. Uh, Jerry writes, you misspelled whiskey in the second box. Nate says, now if you would have said mashed potatoes. Uh, Jeremy writes, sweet potatoes belong in the trash can. Jeremy... They do not. They belong in my belly. Uh, ma mashed potatoes, I see here. Another another mashed potatoes. S James wrote romaine lettuce salad. Now, James trying to be funny because 
right now there is a warning out there for folks to not eat romaine. You are not supposed to eat romaine lettuce. It is considered a no-no because of the possibility of E. coli contamination out there. So avoid romaine. But really what this is is a public service announcement telling you all that salad is dangerous. Uh, let's see. Scarlet writes, uh, who are these pagans that like stuffing better than yummy, buttery, brown, sugary, cinnamony, sweet taters, barbarians, the whole lot of you? Uh, well, Scarlet, I I uh, don't have quite the same reaction to this that you do, but I like that you're, you're getting fired up about it. A lot of you telling me that it's called dressing and not stuffing. I did not know that. Green bean casserole gets a bunch of votes in here, too. Green bean casserole? Really? I don't know. Um, Carrie says rolls. I, I know the hot rolls are nice, but if you've got celiac disease like me, you tend not to have a lot of rolls. All right, now we'll get into them. That was all on the poll, people giving their comments there. Now we'll get into the more traditional side of pre-Thanksgiving roll call. Rob writes, turkey wrapped in bacon, pickle on the side. Happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for your insight. You are chosen for this time, Rob. Well, Rob, you are very kind, man, and thank you for writing in, and I have to say a happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Timothy writes, Buck Shields High, thanks for reading my comments about pickles on hamburgers. Uh, let us agree to disagree and remain calm. Since I am a, a Polish Jew from Michigan, I put pickles on everything. Now, as for Thanksgiving, I thank God daily that Hillary Clinton is not president. Regarding Thanksgiving dinner sides, I'll put my wife's sweet potato casserole up against anything, anytime, anywhere. Oatmeal, honey, eggs, brown sugar, marshmallows, etc., etc. You and Miss Molly have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Shields high, Timothy. Well, Timothy, thank you. And I've got to say, I uh, I am a, a sweet potato fan in general. So, can't disagree. Can't disagree with you there. Ken writes, what's the name of your new show with a liberal co-host? I can't seem to find it. Well, Ken, the new show, it's about six months old now, is called Rising. And if you want to watch it, it's a TV show on the web. If you want to watch it, it is at hill.tv slash rising on the internet. That's the easiest way to go check it out. And my liberal co-host's name is Crystal Ball. That is, in fact, her name. Her name is Crystal Ball. Uh, John writes, hey, Buck, podcast listener here. I love your show, but I must challenge you on one thing. You mentioned that we have been reducing carbon emissions globally, and one of the things you mentioned was that contributing to decline was not burning wood. I supplement my propane furnace heat with a wood stove. Wood heat is carbon neutral. That is, through the lifetime of a tree, it absorbs carbon and produces oxygen. Whether it rots on the ground or burns in my stove, it releases the same amount of carbon in the atmosphere, whereas burning coal, propane, or natural gas releases carbon uh, that was once sequestered below the ground. Shields high from John uh, John, you, you may be correct on this one. I, I was trying to say that in terms of the fuel sources we use, uh, we're certainly more it's certainly more efficient and less uh, less carbon intensive uh, in in the when you burn it off, I mean less CO2 in the air. Keep in mind, I don't think that CO2 emissions are a problem, so that's also a whole other thing. Um, as to how you would gauge, Carbon over the life of a uh, of what is this over a, a tree 
versus when it's burnt. I, I don't know. Um, I never heard that argument before. It's interesting. Thank you for, thank you for writing in and uh, telling me something I didn't know. Larry writes, "Hey Buck, I don't know if you agree to go along with the traditional turkey trappings on Thanksgiving, or if you insist on the ribeye rigmarole." But in either case, wishing you and Miss Molly and your families a fantastic Thanksgiving day with family and friends. Have a great one, but hurry back to the hut. Well, Larry, same to you from me, the Sexton family, and Miss Molly. Uh, we send you a big, a big hug and a happy Thanksgiving and a shields high. And same thing to all of you listening. Uh, thank you. So, you know, one thing I will say is I am thankful each year that I've had this show for all of you who listen who support me and support what I do here and support this whole endeavor of the, uh, the Buck Sexton show and, and the freedom hut as those of us who are a part of it call it. Uh, it really does mean a lot. I, I feel blessed to be able to do this job every, every time that I can come up to this mic and say what I, what I want to say to all of you and, and interact with all of you. I'm very, very lucky and I never forget it. And I appreciate all the time that you give me, Every one of you who listens on radio, on a, on a live stream, or via podcast, uh, I'm thankful for all of you. So you are very much appreciated, and the time you spend with me uh, means a lot. And it's why I try to put as much as I can into the show to make it as informative and as worthwhile and entertaining as I possibly can every single day. Richard all right, Season 3 of The Last Kingdom just dropped on Netflix. Excellent. Well, Richard, I got to tell you, that is pretty exciting. I did not know that season three was even in the works for The Last Kingdom. And I, I really love the first season of that show. I thought the second season was not quite as good as the first, but I, I did enjoy it. So I'm excited. I, I've got a pretty stacked queue right now. I've got kind of an embarrassment of Netflix and Hulu and HBO Go riches uh, I'm going to watch N uh, Narcos season four, the season that takes place in Mexico. That's definitely on my media list. I got to finish up Peaky Blinders. Really enjoying that series, by the way. I think it's great. I didn't really like the the Haunting of Hill House. I thought it was a, a little sanctimonious, a little boring, a little slow. And I just don't think you can have a movie that's that scary where there's really no threat of anything bad happening to anybody it's just like oh my gosh i saw a ghost i mean if the ghost isn't making people disappear or pushing people out of windows or doing scary stuff like that oh it looks like a ghost just called me there Whew, scary stuff uh, but no if you don't have any imminent threat from the the evil spirits or monsters or whatever i just think it's not that it's just not that scary uh, the haunting of hill house I, I cannot recommend i thought it was boring I might go and watch American Horror Story. I've been told that that's really good, does a really, really good job. So I might I might be willing to go check that one out. Um, but I will have to uh, see what I, I... I also have a lot of work to do over the weekend, so I, I can't say that I'm going to get through all that much. But I've, I've got some plans. Uh, Jason. Jason writes, Buck, you said nuts have no place in brownies. And I agree, but what makes a brownie go from good to the best you ever had are Reese's peanut butter cups. And Jason sent a photo of the brownies that he makes with Reese's peanut butter cups in them. I, I Jason, I think you might be onto something here, my friend. Reese's peanut butter cups are incredible, and I I think that there's a I think that you're onto something. All right, team, have a very happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy if you got some time off. Enjoy time with uh, friends and loved ones. 
eat a lot of delicious food. We are back into the breach together next week. Shields high.